Hello, and welcome to a new podcast from the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm Gavin Cleaver. Today, we'll be discussing two new papers on esophageal motility disorders, and I'm delighted to be joined by the author of these papers, Dr. Mark Fox. Doctor, please reintroduce yourself. Thank you, Gavin. My name's uh, Mark Fox, and I'm a so-called lead physician here in Switzerland, uh, where I work, and professor at the University of Zurich, um, and also at Nottingham, where I worked before I moved over here a few years ago. Um, my specialty has been, for many years, the development of new technology and methods to try and assess gastrointestinal function uh, on a number of different levels, motility, sensitivity, and what really interests me is trying to understand how the body works in real-life situations and how that sometimes breaks down in disease. Well, so to set the stage, could you tell us a little bit about these esophageal motility disorders? What are they and how many people are affected by them? Sure. Well, esophageal motility disorders are a, a, a diverse group of, of conditions that uh, we see quite regularly in uh, gastroenterology. Uh, they tend to present uh, either um, as uh, in, in patients with intermittent uh, swallowing conditions, such as achalasia, in people with thoracic pain and dysphagia, such as spasm perhaps, and in people also who have simply impaired clearance of the esophagus which is an important part of gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is by far the most common esophageal condition that we see in our clinics. The prevalence um, of major motility disorders, so achalasia, spasm, nutcracker, and hype, and now called jackhammer esophagus, this is probably quite rare. We're looking at perhaps one or two in a thousand people. But the prevalence of ineffective motility disorders that we see in some patients with swallowing uh, problems and in a lot of people with severe reflux disease, that's really quite common, probably five in a hundred or so. So uh, your two papers look at the diagnosis of these disorders. Now, what are some of the limitations of the current normally accepted diagnostic approaches? Until very recently, um, esophageal motility disorders were diagnosed based on something called conventional manometry, which was a plastic catheter uh, perfused with water, sometimes with air, with only about five or six pressure sensors. And uh, what became clear was that the data that we were collecting uh, was inadequate. There wasn't enough spatial resolution. We were not getting a, a, a proper vision of the esophageal motility from the pharynx through to the stomach. And the agreement between experts that looked at these traces was often very poor. So back in 2004, more or less independently in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and in Zurich, high-resolution manometry was developed and started to be applied in, in patients. So we've now got up to 36 um, pressure sensors uh, running all the way from the back of the throat down into the stomach. It's no longer water-perfused, but solid state, because, of course, water dropping into your throat makes you cough and wheeze. And we now have this beautiful visual image of the peristaltic wave running from the back of the throat through to the stomach, beautifully coordinated with muscle relaxation in the upper and lower esophageal sphincters. We have a very beautiful overview. But the curiosity, to me at least, is that despite this beautiful technology, we still stuck with the old method of actually testing, which is 10 water swallows. But of course, as almost everyone can realize, people don't have symptoms when they swallow water. Symptoms are almost always associated with the intake of solid food. 
And so these studies establish a new methodology of a test meal to assess esophageal function and esophageal symptoms while a patient is eating and drinking normally, as opposed to this very sort of sterile lab-based uh, approach. So this solid test meal, in the first of your two studies, you use it to compare the mechanics of swallowing in healthy volunteers to those with major motility disorders. And so what new insights did this provide about how we eat and swallow during health and disease? It's very striking. The first thing to say is what we looked at, the, the general approach is that we, uh, it's very simple to understand, we simply count the number of pharyngeal swallows and we count the number of effective esophageal swallows. Um, or contractions, if you like. So in water swallows taken every 10 seconds or so, in a healthy person, most pharyngeal swallows are followed by an effective contraction. And indeed, if you swallow nice and slowly, that's the case with solids as well. But we found very quickly that people eat solids at a lot of different speeds. And we found that with actually the rate of pharyngeal swallowing in healthy people that determined the rate of intake, and when healthy people eat fast, they, so they actually suppress esophageal motility, effectively forming a column of food which passes through the esophagus by main force. So the esophageal pump is pushing it down, assisted by esophageal contractions, and all of this seems to work without causing the patient symptoms. We found that as few as 20% of the pharyngeal contractions in healthy people was associated with perfectly normal esophageal transit. Patient didn't have, or the proband didn't have any symptoms, and all seemed well. Whereas in the patient group, it was completely different. These people also swallowed regularly during the meal, of course, but here there were frequently abnormal contractions as well as occasionally normal contractions in some conditions. And the critical difference was, whereas in the healthy group, it was the rate of pharyngeal contractions that was important. In the disease group, it was the number of effective contractions in the esophagus that was the rate limiting step. This is really fascinating. This is a completely new sort of take on esophageal motility disorders. It, uh, it seems that having the wrong kind of motility, if you like, gets in the way of eating. It is in fact better to have practically no motility in a healthy esophagus than the wrong kind of motility in a motility disorder. No, that's fascinating. And so how does this affect um, diagnostics, which you looked at in your second paper? How can a solid test meal actually change diagnosis? So having established our normal values, if you like, in the first paper, we then applied this to a, a large uh, um, retrospective in part and prospective in part case series of nearly a thousand people in, in total. The, uh, what we found was that including solids in the um, routine clinical high-resolution monitoring investigation increased diagnostic yield by between 20 and 40 percent. The 40 percent was in a group of patients at Nottingham, uh, nearly 700 strong, uh, and these people, there were quite a few patients with post operative or atrogenic swallowing disorders, and it turns out that including the test meal was particularly illuminating in this group because it was able to detect structural narrowing, so if you like, obstruction of the esophagus at the gastroesophageal junction in fundification patients, at the 
level of the pouch in bariatric patients, for example. However, um, although this group particularly profited from this new technique in the prospective study in Zurich, which included very few people with post-operative swallowing difficulties, we also had a 20% increase of major motility disorders detected by the inclusion of solids in the routine test. And this included all kinds of disorders, particularly esophageal spasm, outlet obstruction, and um, patients with so-called hypercontractile jackhammer esophagus, where they get these immensely powerful, painful contractions in the esophagus. Well, so what's the, what's the future then for the solid test meal? And can you see these results affecting clinical practice? It will affect clinical practice. And the reason is uh, another finding from our second paper was that you know, we could really observe patients eating the meal and the patient recorded their symptoms during the meal and that was entered into the electronic record. And we had a beautiful one-to-one correlation between abnormal motility and patient symptoms in up to 80% of, our pay, of the people that came through our doors. So this is moving on from a rather sterile look at esophageal motility in and of itself to trying to answer the question, what is the cause of my symptoms, doctor? And of course, it is just as important to get a negative study. Quite frequently, you would have a patient with functional dysphagia who appears to have normal esophageal function and no correlation between their motility and their symptoms. This is also an important finding. So what we were able to do was improve not only the sensitivity of tests, but also the specificity of tests for motility disorders.